Hello and welcome to the podcast English for Life in the UK. This podcast is for those people who want to improve their English and at the same time to learn more about life in this country. And we choose subjects which we hope will be of interest to people. And some of them are linked to the citizenship test that the government has for those people who want to become British citizens eventually. Sheena, what would you say about the style of the podcast that we use? Well, I would say that we try to be natural and have a more natural conversation rather than anything that is rehearsed or scripted. And sometimes that means we might interrupt each other or it might mean, and I think I do this a lot, that I don't finish my sentences off properly. Um, and I would say that we all have our own individual local accents as well. That's great. And I didn't say hello to you, Sheena. Anyway, hello. How are you today? <laughs> I'm all right. Thank you, Mark. Hello. And I'm also joined today by John. How are you, John? I'm very well. Apart from the weather, typical bank holiday weather, it's raining and blowing a gale, I'm afraid, today. But yeah, I'm good. And hello, Sheena. Oh, hello. Hello, John. Same here. Terrible rain. And maybe we could remind people about the transcript, John. Yeah, um, as Mark and Sheena were saying, we try to engage in kind of a, a, an ordinary, normal conversation. Uh, and sometimes some of us perhaps might have uh, stronger regional accents than the others. Um, we might also be using words uh, and phrases that are new to some English learners. So what we do, we issue a transcript, which is basically um, a, a typed up document of all the conversation in the podcast and that transcript is available on the website alongside uh, on the St Augustine's website. That's great and there's information about all that at the end of the podcast about how you can access it. So today we're going to talk about football, football in the UK and um, we decided to choose this topic because it's been in the news quite a lot recently. Um, and also football is a very popular sport in this country um, and indeed around the world. Um, but two weeks ago, it was about two weeks ago now, there were 12 clubs, football clubs across Europe, six of them in the UK, England specifically, uh, three in Italy and three in Spain, that announced that they were going to be forming a new breakaway league, the European Super League. And it caused a huge outcry and a lot of opposition from football fans, uh, of the clubs involved and of all other clubs as well. The government got involved. They weren't happy with it. And... In the end, or where we are now at the moment, it looks like the idea has collapsed because gradually clubs pulled out and said, no, we've got this wrong. We realise the fans don't like it. We'll pull out. But I think it's important to say that this is all down to uh, the ownership of the clubs and the money making. This is a huge 
multinational business football now. And these clubs involved are, are big businesses. Um, and I'm just going to take you through the six English clubs that were involved. So there were three clubs from London. That's Chelsea, Tottenham Hotspurs and Arsenal. There were two Manchester clubs, Manchester United and Manchester City. And there was Liverpool. Um, and the other clubs elsewhere, there was Inter Milan and AC Milan and Juventus from Italy. And there was Atletico Madrid, Real Madrid and Barcelona from Spain. Now, the English clubs, it's really interesting. All but one of those are have foreign owners. So actually, Chelsea are owned by a Russian billionaire. Manchester City are owned by a sheikh from Abu Dhabi. Uh, Liverpool, Manchester United and Arsenal are all owned by Americans. And it's only Tottenham Hotspur that actually has a British owner. And this is not unusual now in football in this country, that a number of the big clubs are either owned fully or partially by um, overseas, big, um, rich businessmen. Um, and uh, they were wanting, they're wanting to make more money out of it. Uh, and the fans were really unhappy about it because they felt that they were being ignored and it was all just about the money. And as we record this today, just yesterday, there was meant to be a match between Manchester United and Liverpool, two of these teams, and the match had to be cancelled because the supporters invaded the stadium and demonstrated outside the hotel where the players were, just to show how unhappy they were with this proposal. So that's, that's the topical stuff. That's what's in the news at the moment. But I think now we're going to go right back to the beginning of the game in this country. And uh, we'll, at the end, we'll come back and link back to what's going on still today. John, you're going to tell us a little bit about the history of some of these clubs. Yeah, as as, as Mark points out there, the, the Super League has been uh, very controversial. So we are um, topical again with our podcast this week. Um, 11 of Europe's most successful clubs and Tottenham Hotspur decided to form this breakaway Super League. Um, and as you can imagine, uh, it's caused uh, great consternation, uh, especially in England. Um, so numbers of reasons, number of reasons really. Um, I think for a long time, um, as as Mark points out, football has been become increasingly commercialised. Uh, there are these billionaire foreign owners, um, and and the idea that they could take these historic English clubs uh, effectively out of the established UEFA competition, potentially even out of the English league, um, caused a lot of anger. Um, one of the things that we're going to look at in terms of, as Mark says, we're going right back into the history of, of association football in this country and to some degree how it's influenced football in the rest of the world. But one of the things that, that's cropped up a lot in the conversations um, has been supporters, football supporters and, and pundits referring and, and talking back about the history and about where these clubs are rooted. 
So they're talking about the, the history of the clubs uh, and the communities that the clubs exist in. Um, and there is, I think this goes to the crux of it, really. Uh, as Mark says, a lot of the owners are from America or they're from Russia or from the Gulf states. And I think there's a sense among supporters that they don't really have an understanding about how important it is for the supporters uh, and how rooted they are in the communities. Football is a very important part of a lot of people's identities right across the world, but especially in the, in the UK. And it's tied up with ideas of civic pride, um, regional identities, even class and, and to some degree religious and political identities in, in the UK. Uh, as we said, much has been made of the gulf between the current owners and, and some of the founding principles and uh, of some of the clubs involved, um, especially the fact that they have their origins in working class communities, uh, something really that's a million miles away from, from some of the current owners. So when we look at clubs like Everton, Aston Villa, they were founded by Methodist churches, um, or we look at a club that wasn't involved, but Glasgow Celtic, they were firm, uh, firmed by um, a Catholic priest in the East End um, to support the immigrant communities uh, in, in Glasgow and things like that. So there's a great deal of history that, that people who support these clubs feel feel very, very passionate about. Um, one of the most interesting uh, histories that, that we've come across has been the history of Manchester City, um, who are now owned by, as Mark points out, the Sheikh from the United Arab Emirates. Um, now, they are, to my knowledge, I think the only um, major football team who were founded by a woman, um, which is very interesting, obviously, in a very male, traditionally a very male-dominated area of culture. So, Sheena, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Anna Cannell and the history of Manchester City? Anna Cannell came from Harrogate and moved to Manchester, where her father became the vicar of St. Mark's Church. And this was in West Gorton, which is a very, very poor area of Manchester at the time. And her and her sister helped her father. And to start with, because of the poverty, they set up a soup kitchen and they were amazed by, you know, the fact that in their first week, they actually gave away one and a half thousand gallons of soup a thousand loaves of bread and 10 tons of coal, which I think shows the extreme poverty in the area. One thing that I think Anna was most, more concerned about was the, the heavy drinking and the gang warfare that, that happened. At the, at the time they called it scuttling and that would be when up to maybe 500 people would fight. So there would be 250 from one gang and 250 from the other who, after a lot of drinking, would fight in the streets. So to try and stop that, Anna set up a male club. She called it a male club to try and improve the community spirit. At first, only three men turned up to her meeting for the male club, but eventually she went out and she knocked on a thousand doors in the area to get the men to come along. And eventually she got more than a hundred men turning up and that was the start of her real success. To start with, they um, had a cricket team and the cricket team became quite successful. And to keep fit in winter, she decided to set up 
a football team and originally it was called St Mark's then it became Gorton Association Football Club and then just two years later in 1887 they moved to a new ground at, at Hyde, Hyde Road and changed their name to Ardwick and in 1891 won the Manchester Cup so just six years after Anna had set up this team two years later the name was changed again and it became Manchester City. That is um, prob probably the most extreme um, example of what supporters have been talking about this week. So like we've said, lots of clubs were founded uh, by churches or by working men's associations uh, founded in, in working class communities. But I think the fact that um, it was founded by a woman and a woman who was seeking to improve the lives of labourers and unemployed and working class people and the fact that now Manchester City as Mark points out is owned by um, the United Arab Emirates who have one of the worst uh, human rights records in the world so civil rights for for women for working class people for the workers who build the stadiums uh, Amnesty International Human Rights Watch have have condemned many of these groups and they've used the word um it's a bit an unusual word but sports washing so some of these all it so it's, it's from the word whitewashing so to cover things up um so quite often we've been hearing this word sports washing so the oligarchs the the big businesses from the gulf states they're buying clubs like manchester city or paris saint-germain or these other clubs in order to try and improve their image um improve their image through sport um, and I think this, on top of, like we were saying, the increasing commercialisation, the, the big increases in ticket prices, um, the fact that it's been taken off terrestrial television, I think the scenes that we've seen in Manchester and, and other grounds are kind of, after a, a, a long period of time, people have kind of had enough and support us. Uh, and I think, as Mark points out, the, the idea of this breakaway league were I think we'd call it would 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 be the the final straw, really, wouldn't we, for supporters of some of these clubs? Obviously, Manchester City, their great derby rivals, would be uh, the word derby we use is for when two clubs from the same city or same area compete against each other. So their derby rivals, obviously, would be Manchester United. They were founded uh, in similar circumstances to Manchester City. And they were founded by members of the Yorkshire and Lancashire Railway Corporation. So they were effectively what we would refer to as a works team. So again, you know, back to uh, working class people founding these clubs for their own entertainment and the betterment of their communities. Um, similarly, through their history, Liverpool have always been um, a club who've been, especially through their most famous manager, Bill Shankly, great Scottish manager, been identified with, um, you know, a very working class city, uh, to some degree, if you like, socialist ideals, ideals of working class solidarity. So I think, you know, it's, it's come as, as a big shock and uh, a bit of an insult to the traditions of these clubs, the idea that they are going to break away and the fact that they are owned and controlled by multi-billionaires. So... The other thing that's interesting is the way the government has got involved now. And I think this is because they realise how unpopular this is. So the government have stepped in and they've actually going to set up a review into the 
ownership of football clubs. I'm not terribly optimistic about what will come out of this, but one of the things I know that they've said they're going to explore is the idea that football fans might have some involvement in the running of football clubs in this country. And the interesting thing is that actually does happen in some countries. In Germany, as I understand it, most of the big teams in Germany, the the fans of those teams actually have uh, uh, are involved in the decision making of those clubs in a way that that doesn't happen in this country. I mean, the other thing that we maybe ought to say is, of course, in those original days that you, the two of you, were talking about, the players for the teams all came from the local area. That's that's where they came from, and they played for their local team. Today, as most people, I'm sure, will know, the vast majority of the players in all of the top leagues in this country and in many other countries actually can come from all over the world and they're just uh, basically it depends on uh, what they're prepared to um, pay them uh, as to who which teams attract which players but uh, certainly all those teams that we were talking about earlier these days the vast majority of their players um, are, do not come from the local area where where the team is formed. You do still get the occasional um, player who is local. Marcus Rashford would be a good example from Manchester United, where he actually was born and brought up in the in the area um, which Manchester United serves. I'm really interested in what you've both had to say, and I just wonder what you think now is the future of football in the UK. Well, it's a highly successful and popular sport. I think the Premier League uh, is one of the top leagues, if not the top league in the world, and is almost certainly here to stay in its present form. I think this European breakaway looks to me as if it isn't going to get anywhere, but it could be that there will be some changes to the structure of the European competitions as they as they currently exist at the moment what do you think john i I hope you're right matt i mean one of the things that that's kind of worried me about this sort of super league idea is when you look at how football's changed in europe you know we used to have a knockout competition it became the champions league um it's been over the last decades it's kind of been fixed and pushed in order to favor the big clubs over the smaller clubs so when you introduce stages and group stages and leagues it means increasingly that a small team like Huddersfield can't get in there and knock out a big team like Juventus um, so in a way I'm, I'm a little bit cynical about this I, I kind of saw this as a, as the logical next step for how UEFA have been pushing football um, I, I really hope it doesn't come off I don't want to see just the biggest teams playing each other I want to see the small teams like Leicester City or teams like that be able to get up and compete with with the bigger teams. I, I mean, it is interesting that a lot of English fans now look to Germany, so they look to clubs like uh, Borussia Dortmund or Schalke, where they have what is called fifty percent plus one. So, as Mark says, the fans do have the final say, but you also look at Barcelona; they are effectively owned by the fans, and they've also been 
very keen to push into the Super League. I, th I think a lot of it is down to the fact that um, it, it, as we've talked about the history, about the foundation of clubs within their communities, one of the big things now is that millions and millions and millions of people watch Manchester or Barcelona or Liverpool all across the world. So I wonder how important it is to these owners, what people in Salford think of Man United, what people in Liverpool think about Liverpool when, you know, they do make hundreds of billions of dollars from people watching across the United States or Asia or anywhere else. So we'll, we'll just have to see. But I certainly think they've been put in the place for the time being. The, the supporters have made the, vo the, the voices very clear that they don't want anything to do with it. So I think for the time being, I think we're safe. Language support. This is the part of the podcast where I choose some words or phrases from the episode and talk about them in more detail. So we're going to talk about some idioms or proverbs today. And uh, John, in this episode, said that the setting up of the European Super League or the proposal to do so had been the final straw for some fans. Now, the idea of the final straw comes from another idiom, which is the straw that broke the camel's back. And what this means is that an apparently small action can cause a much larger and sudden reaction because it is the last of a whole series of actions. So in this case, it's not a particularly small action. It was quite a large one to set up the European Super League, but it came on the back of a lot of other things that football fans were unhappy about. The commercialisation of the game, the, the money that was dominating it, the fact that a lot of the owners were foreign owners, so this was the final straw, the straw that broke the camel's back. So you have this image of a camel loaded up with lots and lots of things to represent the problems, the difficulties, the unhappiness the fans were having. And then one more thing on top of it finally broke the camel's back. It meant that the fans protested and came out and demonstrated. So that made me think about, are there some more specific football-related proverbs? Well, there's one of them, which is to move the goalposts. Now, the goalposts, obviously, are those things in football that create the goal. And the idea of moving the goalposts is changing the rules or changing the context of something whilst you're in the middle of a game. So if the government decides at the last minute to change the rules about, for example, the lockdown over the virus, then you could say they had moved the goalposts. Another one I was thinking about, uh, which is a tactical issue about football, you can sometimes say, this team parked the bus. 
Now, obviously, to park a bus normally means that you have this vehicle, a bus, and you park it at the side of the road. But in this case, to park the bus means to put all your players in a defensive position in front of the other team to stop the other team getting near the ball and not really trying very much to score goals the other end, but just to defend your end. And that is called parking the bus. Another one is you can say that a team has had a clean sheet and a clean sheet doesn't refer to washing your bedding. In this case, in football, a clean sheet means that you didn't have any goals scored against you. So you can say the team had a clean sheet or you could say the goalkeeper had a team sheet because nobody was able to score against him. One last one. You can talk about a game of two halves. This doesn't have to be specifically football. And in fact, again, it is used much more widely. And what it means is if one half of something is very different from the other half. So if one team, for example, has been completely on top in one half of the game and then in the other half, the other team is on top, you can say it is a game of two halves. But people will also use that to describe general situations where something radically change, changes from one time period to another. So I hope those are helpful. I'm sure you can think of some other football related proverbs and idioms yourself. That's it for this week. For those of you who want to find out more about how to get the transcript for this and other episodes or to make contact with us, stay listening and we'll give you the information below. And apart from that, thank you very much for listening. Keep up your practice at English and we will be back to you with you very soon. You can find the transcript, that's the written version of this episode, on our website www.staugustinescentrehalifax.org.uk and that's where you can also find links to all the other episodes and the transcripts so you can listen and read along at the same time. That's also where you can find out how to donate to help our work. We are a charity supporting particularly refugees, asylum seekers and migrants but also all those in need in our local area and uh, we would welcome your support if you felt able to give it. If you follow on the website the links to get involved and donate. We also have an email address that's English for Life in the UK at gmail.com. And we would love to hear from you, your thoughts on our podcast and ideas for the future. We also have a Twitter account at Esol Saint. And there is additional material on that site. 
I will spell out all those addresses. So the website www.stauguestinenteustinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinenteinente